from Simon & Schuster Audio The Art of Happiness by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Howard C. Cutler, M.D. Read by Howard Cutler with Ernest Abuba Featuring His Holiness the Dalai Lama I think this is the first time I am meeting most of you. But to me, whether it is an old friend or a new friend, there's not much difference anyway, because I always believe we are the same. We are all human beings. Moments before, I had found the Dalai Lama alone in an empty basketball locker room, waiting to address a crowd of 6,000 at Arizona State University. He was calmly sipping a cup of tea in perfect repose. But now he briskly rose and without hesitation left the room, emerging into the thick backstage throng of reporters, photographers, security personnel, and students. Finally passing through a curtain, he walked on stage, bowed, folded his hands, and smiled. He was greeted with thunderous applause. At his request, the house lights were not dim, so he could clearly see his audience. And for several moments, he simply stood there, quietly surveying the audience with an unmistakable expression of warmth and goodwill. To those who had never seen the Dalai Lama before, his maroon and saffron monk's robes may have created an exotic impression. Yet his remarkable ability to establish rapport with his audience was quickly revealed as he sat down and began his talk. Brothers and sisters, I am very, very happy to be here with you. And most of you, this is the first time I think of meeting. But to me, whether it's an old friend or new friend, not much differences. I always believe we are the same human being. Of course, you see the different culture, background, and a different way of life, different how to say, faith or different color, but we are same. We are, I think, the human being on the combination of human body and human mind. So therefore, our physical structure also same, our mind and also the emotional level also same. So therefore, wherever I meet some, you see, uh, some people, I always have the feeling that we are same. I'm just meeting one another human being, which just I like myself. I have the feeling that I'm encountering another human being just so, like myself. Level, I find it is much easier to communicate with others on that level. If we emphasize the specific characteristics, like I am Tibetan or I am Buddhist, then there are differences. But those things are secondary. If we can leave the differences aside, I think we can easily communicate, exchange ideas, and share experiences. It was 1993. I had first met the Dalai Lama over a decade earlier while I was visiting Dharamsala, India on a small research grant to study traditional Tibetan medicine. This beautiful and tranquil village perched on a hillside in the foothills of the Himalayas has been home of the Tibetan government in exile for almost 40 years ever since the Dalai Lama, along with 100,000 Tibetans, fled Tibet after the brutal invasion by Chinese forces. During my stay in Dharamsala, I had gotten to know several members of the Dalai Lama's family, 
and it was through them that my first meeting with him was arranged. Like so many other people, I came away from that first meeting in great spirits, with the impression that I had just met a truly exceptional man. As my contact with the Dalai Lama grew over the next several years, I gradually came to appreciate the many unique qualities of this man. He had a penetrating intelligence, but without artifice or cleverness, a kindness, but without excessive sentimentality, great humor, but without frivolousness, and the ability to inspire rather than awe. Over time, I became convinced that the Dalai Lama had learned how to live with a genuine sense of fulfillment and a degree of serenity that I had rarely encountered in other people, and I was determined to identify the principles that had enabled him to achieve this. I realized, of course, that many of his beliefs needed to be understood in the context of Buddhism, but I began to wonder if one could identify a set of his beliefs or practices that could be utilized by non-Buddhists as well, practices that could be applied to our lives to simply help us become happier, stronger, perhaps less afraid. With these thoughts in mind, I hoped someday to have the opportunity to discuss his views at length and to explore his approach to everyday living. Eventually, the Dalai Lama accepted persistent invitations to come to Arizona, where, in addition to his lecture at Arizona State University, he gave an intensive five-day public workshop, which was held in a desert setting near Tucson. I arranged to meet with him for long private interviews during his stay in Arizona, and these discussions later continued at his home in Dharamsala. These public talks and private conversations became the basis for much of this book. While I had looked forward to our private conversations with great anticipation, I discovered that we had some initial hurdles to overcome as we struggled to reconcile our differences in perspective. His as a Buddhist monk, mine as a Western psychiatrist. I began one of our first sessions, for instance, by posing to him certain common human problems, illustrating with several specific case histories and asking for his explanation and advice for dealing with these problems. I was taken aback when after a long pause and reflection, he simply shrugged his shoulders, laughed good-naturedly and said, I don't know. When I pressed the issue and I said it was my job as a psychotherapist to find out why people do the things they do, he laughed again and said that since an individual human mind is so complex, one may never have a full explanation of why a person does the things they do, and at any rate, it would be extremely difficult to try to figure out how the minds of five billion different people work. Sensing my discomfort with his response, he explained further. In trying to determine the source of one's problems, it seems that the Western approach differs in some respects from the Buddhist approach. Underlying all Western modes of analysis is a very strong rationalistic tendency and an assumption that everything can be accounted for. But in some instances, the basic premises and parameters set up by Western science can limit one's ability to deal with certain realities. For instance, you have the constraints of various fundamental premises, such as the idea that everything can be explained within the framework of a single lifetime, and you combine these with the notion that everything can and must be explained and accounted for. But this can cause problems when you come across some phenomena which you cannot account for, then there's a kind of tension created. It's almost a feeling of agony. 
I pointed out that in Western psychology, when we come across certain behaviors that on the surface are difficult to explain, we have certain approaches we can use, such as understanding the role of the unconscious or subconscious thought processes. In Buddhism, there is the idea of dispositions and imprints left by certain types of experiences, which is parallel to the idea of the unconscious. For instance, a certain type of event may have occurred in an earlier part of your life which has left a very strong imprint on your mind, which can remain hidden and then later affect your behavior. I think that Buddhism can accept many of the factors that Western theorists can come up with, but on top of that it would add additional factors. For example, it would add the conditioning and imprints from previous lives. In Western psychology, however, I think that there may be a tendency to overemphasize the role of the unconscious in looking for the source of one's problems. So when you can't explain what is causing certain behaviors or problems, the tendency is to always attribute it to the unconscious. It's a bit like you've lost something and you decide that the object is in this room. And once you have decided this, then you've already fixed your parameters. You've precluded the possibility of its being outside. So you keep on searching, but you are not finding it. Yet you continue to assume that it is hidden somewhere in the room. While recognizing these differences between Eastern and Western outlooks, it soon became clear that the Dalai Lama does not feel that one has to adopt a Buddhist perspective when examining human problems. And by the end of our series of discussions, our cultural differences no longer seemed important as we explored the problems common to all human beings. When I initially conceived of the idea for this book, Exploring the Dalai Lama's Views, I envisioned a conventional self-help format in which the Dalai Lama would present clear and simple solutions to all of life's problems. Then, using my background in psychiatry, I could codify his views in a set of easy instructions on how to conduct one's daily life. But as our meetings progressed, I found that his approach was much broader and more subtle than I had imagined, incorporating all the nuance, richness, and complexity life has to offer. Gradually, however, I began to hear the single note he constantly sounded. It is one of hope. His hope is based on the belief that while attaining genuine and lasting happiness is not easy, it can be done. As his message unfolded, it became increasingly clear that his beliefs are not based on blind faith or religious dogma, but rather on sound reasoning and direct experience. His understanding of the human mind and behavior is based on a lifetime of study. His views are rooted in a tradition that dates back over 2,500 years, yet are tempered by common sense and a sophisticated understanding of modern problems. His appreciation of contemporary issues is the result of his unique position as a world figure, which has allowed him to travel the world many times, exposing him to many different cultures and people from all walks of life, and has enabled him to exchange ideas with top scientists and religious and political leaders. What finally emerges is a wise approach to dealing with human problems that is once optimistic and realistic. While omitting some discussions of the more philosophical aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, which can be found in a number of the Dalai Lama's other books, I have sought to present this unique and refreshing approach to a Western audience. Part 1. The Purpose of Life Chapter 1. The Right to Happiness 
I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. That is clear. Whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we are all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. With these words spoken before a large audience in Arizona, the Dalai Lama cut to the heart of his message. But I wondered if lasting happiness, which in the West has always seemed so ill-defined, elusive, and ungraspable, was really a reasonable goal for most of us. Yes, I believe that happiness can be achieved through training the mind. When I say training the mind in this context, I'm not referring to mind merely as one's cognitive ability or intellect. Rather, I'm using the term in the sense of the Tibetan word sem, which has a much broader meaning, closer to psyche or spirit. It includes intellect and feeling, heart and mind. By bringing about a certain inner discipline, we can undergo a genuine transformation of our attitude, our outlook and approach to living. Now, when we speak of inner discipline, it can, of course, involve many things, many methods. But generally speaking, one begins by identifying the factors which lead to happiness and those factors which lead to suffering. Having done this, one then sets about gradually eliminating the factors which lead to suffering and cultivating those which lead to happiness. That is the way. The purpose of our existence is to seek happiness. It seems like common sense, and Western thinkers from Aristotle to William James have agreed with this idea. But isn't a life based on seeking personal happiness self-centered, even self-indulgent? Not necessarily. Many surveys have shown that it is unhappy people who tend to be the most self-focused and are often socially withdrawn, brooding, and even antagonistic. Happy people, in contrast, are generally found to be more sociable, flexible, creative, and able to tolerate life's daily frustrations more easily. And most important, they are found to be more loving and forgiving than unhappy people. So scientific evidence, as well as our own experience, tells us that there is an intimate connection between personal happiness and kindness towards others. Our personal happiness needn't come at another's expense, as if somehow there were a finite quantity of happiness in the world. And the connection between personal happiness and kindness is reciprocal. Not only are happy people found to be more caring, but unhappy individuals who begin to consciously cultivate genuine compassion will find this a powerful antidote to their own problems. The Dalai Lama offers evidence of this in his own interactions with other people. In one conversation with him, I directly asked him if he was happy. He responded that he was. There was a quiet sincerity in his voice that left no doubt of this, a sincerity that was reflected in his expression and in his eyes. And throughout his week in Arizona, I often witness how his personal happiness manifested as a simple willingness to reach out to others, to create a feeling of affinity and goodwill, even in the briefest of encounters. One morning after his public lecture, he was walking along a patio on his way to his hotel room surrounded by his usual retinue. He noticed one of the housekeeping staff standing by the elevators and paused to ask where she was from. For a moment, she appeared taken aback by this greeting from a foreign-looking man in maroon robes 
and seemed puzzled by the deference given him by the entourage. Then she smiled and answered shyly, Mexico. He paused to chat with her for a few moments and then walked on, leaving her with a look of excitement and pleasure. The next morning at the same time, she appeared at the same spot with another of the housekeeping staff. The two of them greeted the Dalai Lama warmly as he got on the elevator, and he responded in turn. Every day after that, they were joined by a few more of the staff at the designated time and place, until by the end of the week there were dozens of maids in their crisp gray and white uniforms, forming a receiving line that stretched along the length of the path to the elevators. So we begin then with the basic premise that not only is the purpose of our life to seek happiness, but in fact we can find it. It is a vision of happiness as a real objective, one that we can take positive steps towards achieving. And as we begin to identify the factors that lead to a happier life, we will learn how the search for happiness offers benefits not only for the individual, but for one's family and society at large as well. Chapter 2. The Sources of Happiness Although it is possible to achieve happiness, happiness is not a simple thing. There are many levels. In Buddhism, for instance, there is a reference to the four factors of fulfillment, wealth, worldly satisfaction, spirituality, and enlightenment. Together, they embrace the totality of an individual's quest for happiness. Studies have revealed what is most often borne out by our personal experience. Happiness is determined more by one's state of mind than external events. Success may result in a temporary feeling of elation, or tragedy may result in a period of depression, but sooner or later our overall level of happiness migrates back to a certain baseline. So, if we tend to return to our characteristic baseline level of happiness, no matter what our external conditions are, what determines this baseline? And more importantly, can it be modified, set at a higher level? Let us leave aside for a moment ultimate religious or spiritual aspirations like perfection and enlightenment, and deal with joy and happiness as we understand them in an everyday or worldly sense. Within this context, there are certain key elements which we conventionally acknowledge as contributing to joy and happiness. For example, good health, the wealth that we accumulate, friendship or companions. We all recognize that in order to enjoy a fulfilled life, we need a circle of friends with whom we can relate emotionally and trust. Now all these factors are, in fact, sources of happiness. But in order for an individual to be able to fully utilize them, your state of mind is key. It's crucial. If we utilize our favorable circumstances, such as our good health or wealth, in positive ways, in helping others, they can be contributory factors in achieving a happier life. And of course, we enjoy these things. But without the right mental attitude, without attention to the mental factor, these things have very little impact on our long-term feelings of happiness. For example, if you harbor hateful thoughts or intense anger somewhere deep down, then it ruins your health. Also, if one is mentally unhappy or frustrated, then physical comfort is not of much help. On the other hand, 
If you can maintain a calm, peaceful state of mind, then you can be a very happy person, even if you have poor health, or even if you have wonderful possessions, when you are in an intense moment of anger or hatred, you feel like breaking them. At that moment, your possessions mean nothing. Today, there are societies that are very developed materially. Yet among them, there are many people who are not very happy. Just underneath the beautiful surface of affluence, there is a kind of mental unrest leading to frustration, unnecessary quarrels, reliance on drugs or alcohol, and in the worst case, suicide. So there is no guarantee that wealth alone can give you the joy or fulfillment you are seeking. The same can be said of your friends when you are in an intense state of anger or hatred. Even a very close friend appears to you as cold or distant. All of this indicates the tremendous influence that the mental state, the mind factor, has on one's experience of daily life. Naturally, then, we have to take that factor very seriously. While social, material, and possibly even genetic factors may play a role in happiness, there is general agreement among modern behavioral scientists that whether we are feeling happy or unhappy at any given moment is largely determined by our outlook. Surveys and studies have shown that once our basic survival needs are met, our level of life satisfaction often has little to do with our absolute conditions, but rather with how we perceive our situation, how satisfied we are with what we have. And, as the Dalai Lama notes, our outlook can be modified by deliberately developing an inner compassion and serenity that is unaffected by changes in material circumstances. So leaving aside the perspective of spiritual practice in terms of our enjoying a happy day-to-day -day existence, the greater the calmness of your mind, the greater your peace of mind, the greater your ability to enjoy a happy and joyful life. I, I should mention that when we speak of a calm state of mind or peace of mind, we shouldn't confuse that with a totally insensitive, apathetic state of mind. Having a calm or peaceful state of mind doesn't mean being totally spaced out or completely empty. Genuine peace of mind is rooted in affection and compassion. There is a very high level of sensitivity and feeling there. As long as there is a lack of the inner discipline which brings calmness of mind, no matter what external facilities you have, they will never give you the feeling of joy and happiness that you are seeking. On the other hand, if you possess this inner quality, a calmness of mind, a degree of stability within, then even if you lack various external facilities that you would normally consider necessary for happiness, it is still possible to live a happy and joyful life. Though the Dalai Lama's words resonated with me, Western culture is to a considerable extent based on material acquisition. And our feelings of contentment are strongly influenced by a tendency to compare ourselves unfavorably with others and to continually long for more than we have. I think there are two kinds of desire. Certain desires are positive, a desire for happiness 
It's absolutely right. The desire for peace, the desire for a more harmonious world. Certain desires are very useful, but at some point desires can become unreasonable. That usually leads to trouble. Now, for example, sometimes I visit supermarkets. I really love to see supermarkets because I can see so many beautiful things. So when I look at all these different articles, I develop a feeling of desire. And my initial impulse might be, oh, I want this, I want that. Then the second thought that arises, I ask myself, oh, do I really need this? The answer is usually no. If you follow after that initial impulse, then very soon your pockets will empty. However, the other level of desire based on one's essential needs for food, clothing, and shelter is something more reasonable. Now, a feeling of self-satisfaction alone cannot determine if a desire or action is positive or negative. A murderer may have a feeling of satisfaction at the time he is committing the murder, but that doesn't justify the act. All the non-virtuous actions, lying, stealing, sexual misconduct, and so on, are committed by people who may be feeling a sense of satisfaction at the time. The demarcation between positive and negative is not whether it gives you an immediate feeling of satisfaction, but whether it ultimately results in positive or negative consequences. For example, in the case of wanting more expensive possessions, if that is based on a mental attitude that just wants more and more, then eventually you'll reach a limit of what you can get you'll come up against reality. And when you reach that limit, then you'll lose all hope, sink down into depression, and so on. That's one danger inherent in that type of desire. So I think that this kind of excessive desire leads to greed, an exaggerated form of desire based on over-expectation. And when you reflect on the excesses of greed, you'll find that it leads an individual to a feeling of frustration, disappointment, a lot of confusion, and a lot of problems. When it comes to dealing with greed, one thing which is quite characteristic is that although it arrives by the desire to obtain something, it is not satisfied by obtaining. Therefore, it becomes limitless and that leads to trouble. The true antidote of greed is contentment. If you have a strong sense of contentment, it doesn't matter whether you obtain the object or not. Either way, you are still content. So how can we achieve inner contentment? One method is to obtain everything that we desire. All the money, houses, cars, the perfect maid and the perfect body. The Dalai Lama has pointed out the disadvantage of this approach. Sooner or later we will run up against something we can't have. The second and more reliable method is not to have what we want, but to want what we have. Each of us has the ability to make a conscious decision to limit the things that we want and to learn to acknowledge and appreciate what we already have. Another source of happiness closely linked with contentment 
is a sense of self-worth, and the Dalai Lama has very personal views on what we should base our sense of self-worth and how this helps one contend with upheaval and misfortune. Now, in my case, suppose I had no depth of human feeling, no capacity for easily creating good friends. Without that, when I lost my own country, when my political authority in Tibet came to an end, becoming a refugee would have been very difficult. While I was in Tibet, there was a certain degree of respect given to the office of the Dalai Lama, and people related to me accordingly, regardless of whether they had true affection for me or not. But if that was the only basis of people's relation towards me, then when I lost my country, it would have been extremely difficult. But there is another source of worth and dignity from which you can relate to other fellow human beings. You can relate to them because you are still a human being within the human community. You share that bond. And that human bond is enough to give rise to a sense of worth and dignity and can become a source of consolation in the event that you lose everything else. Generally speaking, you can have two different types of individuals. On the one hand, you can have a wealthy, successful person. If that person's source of dignity and sense of worth is only material, then so long as his fortune remains, maybe that person can sustain a sense of security. But the moment the fortune wanes, the person will suffer because there is no other refuge. On the other hand, you can have another person enjoying similar economic status and financial success, but at the same time, that person is warm, affectionate, and has a feeling of compassion. Because that person has another source of worth, another source which gives him or her a sense of dignity, another anger, there is less chance of that person becoming depressed if their fortune happens to disappear. Through this type of reasoning, you can see the very practical value of human warmth and affection in developing an inner sense of worth. The Dalai Lama points out that self-satisfaction, immediate gratification, is not always a reliable indicator of whether desire is positive or negative. This is linked to his views on the nature of pleasure. Now, sometimes people confuse happiness with pleasure. For example, not long ago I was speaking to an Indian audience at Rajpur. I mentioned that the purpose of life was happiness. So one member of the audience said that Rajneesh teaches that our happiest moment comes during sexual activity. So through sex, one can become the happiest. <laughs> so he wanted to know what I thought of that idea. I answered that from my point of view, the highest happiness is when one reaches the stage of liberation, where there is no more suffering. That's genuine, lasting happiness. True happiness relates more to the mind and heart. Happiness that depends mainly on physical pleasure is unstable. One day it's there, the next day it may not be. Every day we are faced with numerous decisions and choices. And try as we might, we often don't choose the thing that we know is good for us. This is related to the fact that the right choice is often the difficult one, the one that involves some sacrifice of our pleasure. 
Over the centuries, a legion of philosophers, theologians, psychologists, and researchers have struggled to define the role that pleasure should play in our lives. But none of us really need dead Greek philosophers, 19th century psychoanalysts, or 20th century scientists to understand pleasure. We know it when we feel it. The touch of a loved one, the luxury of a hot bath on a cold afternoon, the beauty of a sunset. But there is also pleasure in the frenetic rhapsody of a cocaine rush, the ecstasy of a heroin high, the revelry of an alcohol buzz, the bliss of unrestrained sexual excess, the exhilaration of a winning streak in Las Vegas. These are also very real pleasures that many in our society must come to terms with. Although there are no easy solutions to avoiding these destructive pleasures, we do have a place to begin. The simple reminder that what we are truly seeking in life is happiness. As the Dalai Lama points out, that is an unmistakable fact. If we approach our choices by keeping that in mind, it is easier to give up the things that are ultimately harmful to us, even if they bring momentary pleasure. Frame any decision by asking yourself, will it bring me happiness? That simple question can be a powerful tool in helping us skillfully conduct all areas of our lives. Approaching our daily decisions and choices with this question in mind shifts the focus from what we are denying ourselves to what we are ultimately seeking, a stable and persistent happiness. With this perspective, it's easier to make the right choices because we are acting to give ourselves something, not denying or withholding from ourselves. An attitude of moving toward rather than moving away. An attitude of embracing life rather than rejecting it. Chapter 3. Training the Mind for Happiness The first step in seeking happiness is learning. The choices and perceptions that create or destroy our happiness are all a product of our mental state. Once our basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter are met, we are left with a simple premise. We don't need more money, we don't need success, greater fame, we don't need the perfect body, or even the perfect mate. Right now, at this very moment, we have a mind, which is all the basic equipment we need to achieve complete happiness. When we refer to mind or consciousness, there are many different varieties thousands of different thoughts or different minds. Just like external conditions or objects, some things are very useful, some are very harmful, and some are neutral. When dealing with external matter, we try to identify which substances are helpful so we can cultivate and use them. And those things which are harmful, we get rid of. Similarly, when dealing with various states of mind, we should take and nourish those which are helpful and try to reduce those which are harmful and negative. So, we first have to learn how negative emotions and behaviors are harmful to us and how positive emotions are helpful. Once you realize that, you become determined to cherish develop and increase those positive emotions no matter how difficult they are. There is a kind of spontaneous willingness from within. So through this process of learning, of analyzing which thoughts and emotions are beneficial and which are harmful, 
we gradually develop a firm determination to change feeling. Now the secret to my own happiness, my own good future, is within my own hands. I must not miss that opportunity. In Buddhism, the principle of causality is accepted as natural law. In dealing with reality, you have to take that law into account. So in the case of everyday experiences, if there are certain types of events which you do not desire, then the best method of ensuring that is to make sure that the causal conditions which normally give rise to that event no longer arise. Similarly, if you want a particular event or experience to occur, then the logical thing to do is to seek and accumulate the causes and conditions that would give rise to it. This is also the case with mental states and experiences. If we are seeking happiness, we need to clearly identify different mental states and make a distinction, classifying them according to whether they lead to happiness or not. Now, for instance, hatred, jealousy, anger, are harmful. They destroy our mental happiness. Once you harbor feelings of hatred or ill feeling towards someone, once you yourself are filled by hatred or negative emotions, then other people appear to you as also hostile. So as a result, there is more fear, greater inhibition and hesitation, and a sense of insecurity. If you maintain a feeling of compassion, loving-kindness, then something automatically opens your inner door. Through that, we can communicate much more easily with other people, and that feeling of warmth creates a kind of openness. It gives you a spirit of friendship. Then there's less need to hide things, and as a result, feelings of fear, self-doubt, and insecurity are automatically dispelled. There was an appealing logic to the Dalai Lama's thoughts, but I wondered if happiness was simply a matter of cultivating more positive mental states such as kindness and so on, why are so many people unhappy? Bringing about a transformation in one's outlook, one's way of thinking, is not a simple matter. It requires the application of many different factors from different directions. One shouldn't have the notion that there's just one key, a secret, and if you can get that right, then everything will be okay. It is similar to taking proper care of the physical body. You need a variety of nutrients, not just one or two. In the same way, you need a variety of methods to deal with the varied and complex mental states, and change takes time. There are a lot of negative mental traits, so you need to address and counteract each one of these. That isn't easy. But I think that as time goes on, you can make positive changes. Every day, as soon as you get up, you can develop a sincere positive motivation, thinking, I will utilize this day in a more positive way. I should not waste this day. And then at night, before bed, check what you've done, asking yourself, did I utilize this day as I planned? If it went accordingly, then you should rejoice. 
If it went wrong, then regret what you did and critique the day. So through methods such as this, you can gradually strengthen the positive aspects of the mind. No matter what activity or practice we are pursuing, there isn't anything that isn't made easier through constant familiarity and training. Through training, we can change. We can transform ourselves. Challenging as the Dalai Lama's prescriptions may sound, we are not only psychologically, but also physiologically designed to transform ourselves using just the methods he recommends. The systematic training of the mind, the cultivation of happiness, is possible because of the very structure and function of the brain. We are born with brains that are genetically hardwired with certain instinctual behavior patterns. We are predisposed mentally, emotionally, and physically to respond to our environment in ways that enable us to survive. These basic sets of instructions are encoded in countless innate nerve cell activation patterns. But the wiring in our brains is not static. It's not irrevocably fixed. Our brains are also adaptable. Neuroscientists have documented the fact that the brain can design new patterns, new combinations of nerve cells and neurotransmitters, the chemicals that transmit messages between nerve cells, in response to new input, new thoughts, and experiences. In fact, our brains are malleable, ever-changing, reconfiguring their wiring according to new thoughts and experiences. Scientists call the brain's inherent capacity to change plasticity, and this remarkable feature appears to be the physiological basis for the possibility of transforming our minds. By mobilizing our thoughts and practicing new ways of thinking, we can reshape our nerve cells and change the way our brains work. Mental retraining involves changes in understanding as well as emotional changes. Although it may be natural for us to want to avoid suffering, in a world of sweeping changes and conflicting values, it may be necessary to re-educate ourselves about our own capacities for goodness and compassion, to distinguish between what Buddhism calls wholesome and unwholesome actions, and to behave accordingly. This is all part of the process of inner discipline described by the Dalai Lama, a discipline that includes attention to personal ethics. I think that ethical behavior is another feature of the kind of inner discipline that leads to happiness. Great spiritual teachers like Buddha advise us to perform wholesome actions and avoid indulging in unwholesome actions. Whether one's action is wholesome or unwholesome depends on whether that action or deed arises from a disciplined or undisciplined state of mind. A disciplined mind leads to happiness, and an undisciplined mind leads to suffering. And in fact, it is said that bringing about discipline within one's mind is the essence of the Buddha's teaching. When I speak of discipline, I'm referring to self-discipline, not discipline that's externally imposed on you by someone else. Also, I'm referring to discipline that's applied in order to overcome your negative qualities. I wondered why, if wholesome behavior naturally leads to happiness, and all of us want happiness, why should we need so much learning, training, and discipline to engage in more wholesome behaviors? Doing wholesome deeds may not come naturally. We have to consciously train towards it. Traditionally, it has been considered the responsibility of religion 
to prescribe what behaviors are wholesome and what are not. However, in today's society, religion has lost its prestige and influence to some degree. At the same time, no alternative such as secular ethics has come up to replace it. It is because of this I think we need to make some special effort and consciously work towards gaining that knowledge. Although I personally believe that our human nature is fundamentally gentle and compassionate, it is not enough. We must also develop an appreciation and awareness of that fact. And by changing how we perceive ourselves through learning and understanding, this can have a very real impact on how we interact with others and how we conduct our daily lives. Since we are born with an innate desire to achieve happiness and avoid suffering, and that does not have to be learned, it still seemed to me that the path of achieving happiness should be a more spontaneous and natural process, not requiring such extensive education and sophisticated knowledge. The Dalai Lama responded to this issue. The more sophisticated your level of education and knowledge about what truly leads to happiness and what causes suffering, the more effective you will be in achieving happiness. For example, in overcoming anger, although animals may experience anger, they cannot understand that anger is destructive. In the case of human beings, however, you have a kind of self-awareness which allows you to reflect and observe that when anger arises, it hurts you. Therefore, you can make a judgment that anger is destructive. You need to be able to make that inference. And you need other abilities, such as the abilities to judge the long-term and short-term consequences of your behavior and weigh the two. So in learning about how to eliminate the causes of suffering and achieve happiness, it is more complicated than, for instance, simply putting your hand in a fire and then being burned and just learning never to do it again. So it is because of these things that I think education and knowledge are crucial. One problem with our current society is that we have an attitude towards education, as if it is there simply to make you more clever make you more ingenuous. The most important use of knowledge and education is to help us understand the importance of engaging in more wholesome actions and bringing about discipline within our minds to affect changes from within to develop a good heart. Chapter 4 Our Fundamental Nature we are made to seek happiness. And it is clear that feelings of love, affection, closeness, and compassion bring happiness. The Dalai Lama's view that the purpose of human life is to seek happiness is closely linked to his belief that the fundamental nature of human beings is gentle and compassionate, that all beings possess an underlying state known in Buddhist philosophy as Buddha nature a state in which the mind is completely untainted by the negative emotions and thoughts that are the source of our suffering. I believe that every one of us has the basis to be happy, to access the warm and compassionate states of mind that bring happiness. In fact, it is one of my fundamental beliefs that not only do we inherently possess the potential for compassion, 
but that the basic or underlying nature of human beings is gentleness. Now, the Buddhist doctrine of Buddha nature provides some grounds for the belief that the fundamental nature of all sentient beings is essentially gentle and not aggressive. But there are also other grounds on which I base this belief. I think the subject of human affection or compassion isn't just a religious matter. It's an indispensable factor in our day-to-day -day life. So first, if we look at the very pattern of our existence from an early age until our death, we can see the way in which we are nurtured by others' affection. It begins at birth. Our very first act after birth is to suck our mother's or someone else's milk. That is an act of affection, of compassion. Without that act of mutual affection, that bond, we cannot survive. That's clear. Then our physical structure seems to be more suited to feelings of love and compassion. We can see how a calm, affectionate, wholesome state of mind has beneficial effects on one's health and physical well-being while negative states of mind, such as anger and hatred, are destructive to our health. We can also see that our emotional health is enhanced by feelings of affection. To understand this, we need only reflect on how we feel when others show us warmth and affection, or observe how our own affectionate feelings or attitudes automatically and naturally affect us. These gentler emotions and the positive behaviors that go with them lead to a happier family and community life. So, I think that one can infer that our fundamental nature is one of gentleness. And if this is the case, then it makes all the more sense to try to live a way of life which would be more in accordance with this basic gentle nature of our being. But if this is the case, one also naturally wonders why there is so much aggression and conflict in the world. Of course, anger, violence, and aggression may certainly arise, but I think it's only on a secondary or more superficial level, in a sense. It arises when we are frustrated in our efforts to achieve love and affection. They are not part of our most basic underlying nature. So although aggression can occur, I believe that these conflicts aren't necessarily because of human nature, but rather a result of the human intellect, unbalanced human intelligence, misuse of our imaginative faculty. I believe that our most fundamental nature is gentleness, and our intellect developed later in the course of human evolution. And if that human ability, that human intelligence, develops in an unbalanced way, without being properly counterbalanced with compassion, then it can become destructive. But I think it's important to recognize that if human conflicts are created by misuses of human intelligence, we can also utilize our intelligence to find ways and means to overcome these conflicts. When human intelligence and human goodness or affection are used together, all human actions become constructive. When we combine a warm heart with knowledge and education, we can learn to respect others' views and others' rights. This becomes the basis of a spirit of reconciliation that can be used
to overcome aggression and resolve our conflicts. The Dalai Lama's view of the underlying compassionate nature of human beings seems to slowly be gaining ground in the West. Over the past two or three decades, there have been hundreds of scientific studies indicating that aggression and violence is not innate. It is not genetically programmed into human nature. Violent behavior is influenced by a variety of biological, social, situational, and environmental factors. Even though we have the neural apparatus to act violently, that behavior is not automatically activated. Most contemporary researchers in the field currently feel that we have the potential to develop into gentle, caring people or violent, aggressive people. The impulse that gets emphasized is largely a matter of training. Once we conclude that the basic nature of humanity is compassionate rather than aggressive, our relationship to the world around us changes immediately. Seeing others as basically gentle instead of antagonistic and selfish helps us to relax, trust, live at ease. It allows us to wake up each morning in an atmosphere of kindness rather than one of hostility and apprehension. It makes us happier. First Meditation on the Purpose of Life When life becomes too complicated and we feel overwhelmed, it's often useful just to stand back and remind ourselves that our overall goal is happiness. This can put our life back in proper context, allow a fresh perspective, and enable us to see what direction to take. The Dalai Lama's understanding of the factors that ultimately lead to happiness is based on a lifetime of methodically observing his own mind, exploring the nature of the human condition, and investigating these things within a framework first established by the Buddha over 25 centuries ago. And from this background, he has come to some definite conclusions about which activities are most worthwhile. His words, a summary of his beliefs, can be used as the basis of a meditation, as part of your own pursuit of happiness. Sometimes when I meet old friends, it reminds me how quickly time passes, and it makes me wonder if we've utilized our time properly or not. Proper utilization of time is so important. While we have this body, and especially this amazing human brain, I think every minute is something precious. Our day-to-day -day existence is very much alive with hope, although there is no guarantee of one's future. There is no guarantee that tomorrow at this time we will be here. But still, we are working for that purely on the basis of hope. So we need to make the best use of our time. I believe that the proper utilization of time is this. If you can, serve other people, other sentient beings. If not, at least refrain from harming them. I think that is the whole basis of my philosophy. So let us reflect on what is truly of value in life, what gives meaning to our lives, and set our priorities based on that. The purpose of our life needs to be positive. We weren't born with the purpose of causing trouble, harming others. For our life truly to be of value, I think we must develop basic good human qualities, warmth, kindness, compassion. Then our life becomes meaningful and more peaceful, happier. 
Part 2 Human Warmth and Compassion Chapter 5 A New Model for Intimacy Within all beings there is the seed of perfection. However, compassion is required in order to activate that seed which is inherent in our heart and mind. Satisfying and fulfilling human relationships is a key ingredient to a happier life, and I spent some time discussing the subject with the Dalai Lama. One afternoon, while sitting in a hotel lobby waiting for my meeting with him to begin, I'd been absently reading the personals section of a local alternative newspaper. Densely packed pages of people searching desperately to connect with another human being. Still thinking of those ads as I sat down to begin my session with the Dalai Lama, I asked if he ever got lonely. To my surprise, he said no. I asked him why that was. I think one factor is that I look at any human being from a more positive angle. I try to look for their positive aspects. This attitude immediately creates a feeling of affinity, a kind of connectiveness. And it may partly be because on my part, there is less apprehension, less fear that if I act in a certain way, Maybe the person will lose respect or think that I am strange. So, because that kind of fear and apprehension is absent, there's a kind of openness. Loneliness is so pervasive in our society that I never expected to confront anyone who did not experience it. The Dalai Lama's explanation surprised me, and I wondered how one could develop that degree of comfort with other people, free from a fear of being disliked or judged by others, maintaining that feeling of genuine connection with others to the point of never feeling lonely. My basic belief is that you first need to realize the usefulness of compassion. Once you accept the fact that compassion is not something childish or sentimental, realize its deeper value, then you immediately develop an attraction towards it, a willingness to cultivate it. And once you encourage the thought of compassion in your mind, once that thought becomes active, then your attitude towards others changes automatically. That will automatically reduce fear and allow an openness with other people. It creates a positive, friendly atmosphere. With that attitude, you can approach a relationship in which you, yourself, initially create the possibility of receiving affection or a positive response from the other person. That kind of openness at least allows the possibility of having meaningful conversation with them, even if they are unfriendly at first, but without the attitude of compassion. If you are feeling closed, irritated, or indifferent, then you can even be approached by your best friend and you just feel uncomfortable. I think that in many cases people expect the other person to respond to them in a positive way first, rather than taking the initiative themselves to create that possibility. I feel that's wrong and can act as a barrier that just serves to promote a feeling of isolation from others. So if you wish to overcome the feeling of isolation and loneliness, I think that your underlying attitude makes a tremendous difference and approaching others with the thought of compassion in your mind is the best way to do this. In addition to our private discussions, the Dalai Lama had introduced the idea of compassion in his public talks as well. 
He explained in detail the importance of our compassionate interaction with other sentient beings and stressed the importance of understanding that life is made up of inextricable links to other people, both known and unknown, on whom we depend. I sat among the crowd of 1,500 people that afternoon, listening to him speak of these ideas, but for some reason I felt a certain instinctive resistance to what he was saying. Although I've always highly valued my family and friends, I've always prided myself on self-reliance and considered myself to be an independent person. Secretly, perhaps, I've tended to regard overly dependent people with a kind of contempt, a sign of weakness. Yet that afternoon, as the Dalai Lama spoke, something happened. As our dependence on others was not my favorite topic, my mind had started to wander and I found myself absently removing a loose thread from my shirt sleeve. As the Dalai Lama spoke about how we are all dependent on others' efforts and cooperation, I began to think about all the people who were involved in the making of my shirt. I started by imagining the farmer who grew the cotton. Next, the salesman who sold him the tractor to plow the field. Then the hundreds or even thousands of people involved in manufacturing that tractor, including the people who mined the ore to make the metal for each part of the tractor, and all the designers of the tractor. Then, of course, the people who processed the cotton and wove the cloth, the people who cut, dyed, and sewed that cloth, the cargo workers and truck drivers delivering it to the store, and the salesperson who sold it to me. It occurred to me that virtually every aspect of my life came about as a result of other people's efforts. My precious self-reliance was a complete illusion. As this realization dawned on me, I was overcome with a profound sense of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all beings. I felt a softening, something. It made me want to cry. The Dalai Lama's views about loneliness and human interconnectedness had been surprising and enlightening. But in discussing human relationships, it is clear that there are many different kinds of relationships, many different ways in which we can relate to one another. In Western culture, for instance, it is considered important to have one special person with whom you can share a deep intimacy, a person such as a lover or a spouse. I was curious about the Dalai Lama's personal background in this regard. Had his being raised as a monk and leader of a nation from a very early age, and even worshipped as a kind of deity, create a sense of distance and isolation from others? Did he regret his early separation from his family and the fact that he could not marry? Did he miss out on developing a deeper level of personal intimacy? And I wondered how his unique background and perspective might apply to our own intimate relationships. I never felt a lack of intimacy. Of course, my father passed away many years ago, but I felt quite close to my mother, my teachers, my tutors, and others. And with many of these people, I could share my deepest feelings, fears, and concerns. When I was in Tibet on state occasions and at public events, there was a certain formality, a certain protocol was observed, but that wasn't always the case. At other times, for instance, I used to spend time in the kitchen, and I became quite close with some of the kitchen staff, and we could joke or gossip or share things, and it would be quite relaxed without that sense of formality or distance. Since I've become a refugee, I've never felt a lack of people with whom I can share things. And it's not just a matter of knowing people and having a superficial exchange, but really sharing my deepest problems and suffering. 
I feel this sense of intimacy, connection, of sharing with my friends, with many people. For instance, in the past, if I felt disappointed or unhappy with Tibetan government policy, or I was concerned with other problems, even the threat of Chinese invasion, then I would return to my rooms and share this with the person who sweeps the floor. From one point of view, it may seem quite silly, the Dalai Lama, the head of the Tibetan government, facing some international or national problems and sharing that with the sweeper. But personally, I feel it is very helpful because the other person participates and we can face the problem or suffering together. The influential British psychoanalyst John Bowlby wrote that intimate attachments to other human beings are the hub around which a person's life revolves. From these intimate attachments, a person draws his strength and enjoyment of life. There seems to be universal agreement among all researchers in the field of human relationships that intimacy is central to our existence and is a critical factor in promoting physical and emotional health and well-being. While researchers and scientists all agree on this fact, they can't seem to agree on an exact definition of intimacy. There is a vast spectrum of different definitions and models of intimacy, ranging from defining intimacy purely in terms of physical contact to describing it as the experience of connectivity, a relationship to everything around us. And definitions of the most ideal form of intimacy also vary from culture to culture and tend to dramatically change over time as well. Looking at all the different definitions of human intimacy and how our ideas of intimacy change over time and from place to place, one fact becomes clear. There are infinite variations among people with respect to how they can experience a sense of closeness. This realization alone offers us a great opportunity. It means that at this very moment we have vast resources of intimacy available to us. The Dalai Lama, for example, serves as an illustration of how an individual can develop deep and intimate relationships despite his role in life that might tend to set him apart from others or isolate him and his monastic upbringing which completely ruled out the possibility of forming the kinds of romantic personal relationships that are so sought after in Western culture. Today, so many of us are pressed by a feeling of something missing in our lives, intensely suffering from a lack of intimacy. This is particularly true when we go through the inevitable periods in our lives when we are not involved in a romantic relationship or when the passion wanes from our current relationship. There's a widespread notion in our culture that deep intimacy is best achieved within the context of a passionate, romantic relationship. This can be a profoundly limiting viewpoint, cutting us off from other potential sources of connection and the cause for much misery and unhappiness. But we have within our power the means to avoid this. Think of the personal column in the newspaper again. At the very moment that each person is composing his or her ad, struggling to find just the right words to bring romance into their lives and end the loneliness, many of these people are already surrounded by friends, family, or acquaintances, connections that can be easily cultivated into genuine and deeply satisfying human relationships. If what we seek in life is happiness, and intimacy is an important ingredient of a happier life, then it clearly makes sense to conduct our lives based on a model of intimacy that includes as many forms of connection with others as possible. The Dalai Lama's view offers such a model. 
a willingness to open oneself to many others, to family, friends, and even strangers, forming bonds based on compassion and one's common humanity. Chapter 6, Love, Marriage, and Romance I think that if one is seeking to build a truly satisfying relationship, the best way of bringing this about is to get to know the deeper nature of the person and relate to her or him on that level, instead of merely on the basis of superficial characteristics. In this type of relationship, there is a role for genuine compassion. On the other hand, a relationship built primarily on sexual desire, for instance, is like a house built on a foundation of ice. As soon as the ice melts, the building collapses. As a Buddhist monk, the Dalai Lama has developed satisfying relationships and found intimacy within the context of friendships. But studies have shown that marriage is one factor that can, in fact, bring happiness providing the intimacy and close bonds that enhance health and overall life satisfaction. I wanted to bring up the subject of marriage, a conventional source of happiness in our culture, and had planned to begin one discussion by soliciting his opinion about all the joys and virtues of romance and marriage. A chance encounter with a bickering couple immediately before our meeting, however, prompted me to ask him instead about why conflicts and problems seem to arise so often in marriages. Of course, when dealing with conflicts, there can be many factors involved. It can be quite complex. So when we are dealing with trying to understand relationship problems, the first stage involves deliberately reflecting on the underlying nature and basis of that relationship. So, first of all, one has to recognize that there are different types of relationships and understand the differences between them. For example, Leaving aside the issue of marriage for a moment, even within ordinary friendships, we can recognize that there are different types of friendship. Some are based on wealth, power, or position. In these cases, your friendship continues as long as your power, wealth, or position is sustained. Once these grounds are no longer there, then the friendship will also begin to disappear. On the other hand, there are friendships based on true human feeling a feeling of closeness where there is a sense of sharing and connectiveness. That is what I would call genuine friendship. In the same way, if someone is running into problems with their spouse, it can be helpful to look at the underlying basis of the relationship. For example, you often find relationships very much based on immediate sexual attraction. When a couple has just met, seen each other on just a few occasions, they may be madly in love and very happy, but any decision about marriage made at that instant would be very shaky. Just as one can become, in some sense, insane from the power of intense anger or hatred, it is also possible for an individual to become, in some sense, insane by the power of passion or lust. A relationship based on that initial attraction is very unreliable and unstable because it is based on temporary phenomena. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise if that kind of relationship eventually runs into trouble. If the relationship is based only on sexual desire without a component of mutual respect, 
then the individual may be relating to each other not so much as people, but rather as objects, and the relationship becomes almost like prostitution, in which neither side has respect for the other. However, there is a second type of relationship which is also based on sexual attraction, but where the physical attraction is not the predominant basis of the relationship. In this second type, there is an underlying appreciation of the value of the other person, and you accord respect and dignity to that individual. And in order to establish that type of relationship, it is crucial to spend enough time to get to know each other in a genuine sense. Now, I've heard many people claim that their marriage has a deeper meaning than just a sexual relationship. That marriage involves two people trying to bond their lives together, share life's ups and downs together. If that claim is honest, then I believe that's the proper basis on which a relationship should be built. A sound relationship should include a sense of responsibility and commitment towards each other. I brought up the idea of romance and its importance in Western society. Not just the physical sex act, but the whole idea of falling deeply in love, that blissful state which is so glorified in popular films, literature, and culture. I was surprised by the decisiveness of his response. I think that leaving aside how the endless pursuit of romantic love may affect our deeper spiritual growth, even from the perspective of a conventional way of life, the idealization of this romantic love can be seen as an extreme. Unlike those relationships based on caring and genuine affection, this is another matter. It's something based on a fantasy, unattainable, and therefore may be a source of frustration. So on that basis, it cannot be seen as a positive thing. At first, I felt that the Dalai Lama was dismissing the idea of romance too lightly. Given his monastic background and training, it was understandable, perhaps, that he would take a dim view of romance. But in Western culture, the idea of romantic love has flourished for the past 200 years under the influence of the 19th century romantic movement. And long before that, the ancient Greeks had conceived of eros, romantic passionate love, as an ancient desire for fusion with the lost half of the self. Many contemporary researchers feel that the capacity to experience the intense feeling of falling in love may be programmed into our genes at birth as a genetically determined component of mating behavior created by the production of certain chemicals in the brain. And the psychological drives towards falling in love may be just as strong as the sensation of oneness with the loved one may echo the blissful experience of being merged with the mother in infancy. So romantic love is clearly a potent cocktail of cultural, biological, and psychological ingredients. However, somewhere along the road of Western civilization, the role of romance in an intimate relationship began to assume greater and greater importance, and the notion of a romantic relationship has gradually acquired an artificial quality, in that it is primarily fueled by fantasy, imagination, and the idealization of the other person. And all too often, when reality intrudes, and one discovers the inevitable human flaws of one's lover, the romantic, idealized vision of the other person evaporates, and the relationship is in danger of collapse. From this perspective, perhaps the Dalai Lama's view of romance is not far off the mark, and this is why he encourages us 
to examine the underlying basis of relationship. Should we find ourselves in a relationship that is going sour? Sexual attraction, or even the intense feeling of falling in love, may play a role in forming an initial bond between two people, to draw them together. But like a good epoxy glue, that initial bonding agent needs to be mixed with other ingredients before it will harden into a lasting bond. Ingredients such as affection, compassion, and mutual respect as human beings. Chapter 7. The Value of Compassion I truly believe that compassion provides the basis for human survival, the real value of human life, and that without that, there is a basic peace missing, and a compassionate attitude is something that we can always carry with us. The development of compassion plays a far greater role in the Dalai Lama's life than simply as a means to cultivating a feeling of warmth and affection, a means of improving our relationships with others. It is an integral part of his spiritual path, a critical element in achieving the full realization of our spiritual potential. He further explained his views on the topic. Compassion can be roughly defined in terms of a state of mind which is nonviolent, non-harming, and non-aggressive. It is a mental attitude based on the wish for others to be free of their suffering and is associated with a sense of commitment, responsibility, and respect towards the other. In the Tibetan word sewa, there is also a sense of state of mind that can wish for good things for oneself. In developing compassion, perhaps one could begin with the wish that oneself be free of suffering, and then taking that natural feeling and cultivating it, enhancing it, and then extending it out to include and embrace others. Now when people speak of compassion, there is often a danger of confusing compassion with attachment. So when we discuss compassion, we must make a distinction between two types. One kind is tinged with attachment, the feeling of controlling someone or loving them so that they'll love you back. This ordinary type of compassion is quite partial and biased because it is based on perceiving the other person as a friend or someone who is close to you. But this kind of love or compassion is unstable. If there is a change, a disagreement perhaps, or your friend does something to make you angry, then all of a sudden your mental projection changes. The concept, my friend, is no longer there. And your feeling changes, and you may even have a feeling of hatred. So that kind of love based on attachment can be closely linked with hatred. But there is a second type of compassion that is free from such attachment. That is genuine compassion. That kind is based on the rationale that every human being has an innate desire to be happy and overcome suffering just like myself. And just like myself, they have the natural right to fulfill this fundamental aspiration. On the basis of the recognition of this equality and commonality, you can feel compassion regardless of whether you view him or her as a friend or an enemy. It is based on the other's fundamental rights rather than your own mental projection. 
Making the distinction between these two kinds of compassion and cultivating genuine compassion can be quite important in our day-to-day -day life. For instance, in marriage, there is generally a component of emotional attachment. But if there is a component of genuine compassion as well, based on mutual respect, the marriage tends to last a long time. In the case of emotional attachment without compassion, the marriage is more unstable and tends to end more quickly. It seemed to me that it might be quite difficult to develop that kind of universal compassion, that kind of generic compassion divorced from personal feeling. And since love and compassion is a subjective feeling and a person would experience the same feeling or emotional tone in either type, why was it so important to distinguish between the two? I think there is a different quality between the feeling of genuine love and compassion and love based on attachment. It's not the same feeling. The feeling of genuine compassion is much stronger, much wider. It has a very profound quality. For example, if you see an animal intensely suffering, like a fish writhing with a hook in its mouth, you might spontaneously experience a feeling of not being able to bear their pain. That feeling isn't based on a special connection with that particular animal, but simply on the fact that this being also has feeling, can experience pain, and has a right not to experience such pain. That kind of compassion is much more sound and more durable in the long run. I think that in one sense, one could define compassion as the feeling of unbearableness at the sight of other people's suffering. And in order to generate that feeling, one must first have an appreciation of the seriousness or intensity of another's suffering. So the more fully one understands suffering and the various kinds of suffering we are subject to, the deeper will be one's level of compassion. I noted that by definition, compassion involves opening oneself to another's suffering, sharing another's suffering. But I asked the Dalai Lama, why would we want to take on another's suffering when we don't even want our own and go to great lengths to avoid it? His response was unhesitating. I feel that there is a significant difference between your own suffering and the suffering you might experience in a compassionate state in which you take upon yourself and share other people's suffering. A qualitative difference. When you think about your own suffering, there is a feeling of being totally overwhelmed, a sense of being burdened, of being pressed under something, a feeling of helplessness. There's a dullness, almost as if your faculties have become numb. But in the case of compassion, the feeling is much different. You may still initially experience a certain degree of discomfort, but underlying the uncomfortable feeling is a very high level of alertness and determination because you are voluntarily and deliberately accepting another's suffering for a higher purpose. There is a feeling of connectiveness and commitment, a feeling of freshness rather than dullness. So mental attitude makes a tremendous difference. In recent years, there have been many studies that support the idea 
that developing compassion and altruism has a positive impact on many aspects of our physical health. Compassionate behavior also contributes to emotional health, as studies have shown that reaching out to help others can induce a feeling of happiness, a calmer mind, and reduce depression. While the scientific evidence backs up the Dalai Lama's position on the very real and practical values of compassion, we needn't rely solely on scientific studies and research. We can easily discover the links between caring, compassion, and personal happiness in our own lives and those around us. Second Meditation on Compassion In discussing various techniques to cultivate compassion, the Dalai Lama has often mentioned the vital role of empathy, the ability to imagine oneself in another situation. One of the most effective techniques of developing empathy is to begin by looking for the most fundamental trait we all have in common with others, our humanity. The following simple exercise offered during one of the Dalai Lama's public talks elegantly crystallizes his thoughts on the subject of cultivating compassion. In generating compassion, you start by recognizing that you do not want suffering and that you have a right to happiness. This can be verified or validated by your own experience. You then recognize that other people, just like yourself, also do not want to suffer and they have the right to happiness. So this becomes the basis of your beginning to generate compassion. So let us meditate on compassion today. Begin by visualizing a person who is acutely suffering, someone who is in pain or is in a very unfortunate situation. For the first three minutes of the meditation, Reflect on that person's suffering in a more analytic way. Think about their intense suffering and the unfortunate state of that person's existence. After thinking about that person's suffering for a few minutes, next try to relate that to yourself, thinking that individual has the same capacity for experiencing pain, joy, happiness, and suffering that I do then try to allow your natural response to arise, a natural feeling of compassion towards that person. Try to arrive at a conclusion, thinking how strongly you wish for that person to be free from that suffering, and resolve that you will help that person to be relieved from their suffering. Finally, place your mind single-pointedly on that kind of conclusion or resolution and for the last few minutes of the meditation, try to simply generate in your mind a compassionate or loving state. Part 3. Transforming Suffering Chapter 8. Facing Suffering In the time of the Buddha, a woman named Kisukutami suffered the death of her only child. Unable to accept it, she ran from person to person, seeking a medicine to restore her child to life. The Buddha was said to have such a medicine. Kisigatami went to the Buddha, paid homage, and asked, Can you make a medicine that will restore my child? I know of such a medicine, the Buddha replied, but in order to make it, I must have certain ingredients. Relieved, the woman asked, What ingredients do you require? 
Bring me a handful of mustard seed, said the Buddha. The woman promised to procure it for him, but as she was leaving, he added, I require the mustard seed to be taken from a household where no child, spouse, parent, or servant has died. The woman agreed and began going from house to house in search of the mustard seed. At each house, the people agreed to give her the seed, but when she asked them if anyone had died in that household, she could find no home where death had not visited. In one house, a daughter, in another, a servant, in others, a husband or a parent had died. Kisigatami was not able to find a home free from the suffering of death. Seeing she was not alone in her grief, the mother let go of her child's lifeless body and returned to the Buddha, who said with great compassion, You thought that you alone had lost a son. The law of death is that among all living creatures there is no permanence. It is clear from many of the Dalai Lama's speeches and remarks that compassion and suffering are closely linked in his philosophy. It is difficult to learn genuine compassion without understanding suffering, and we cannot fully understand suffering without directly confronting it first. And yet we have so many ways of denying or avoiding our problems, pain, and suffering. In beginning to learn how to deal with suffering, the story of Kisukutami is very instructive. Her insight into the universal nature of human suffering did not lessen the inevitable suffering that came from her loss, but it did reduce the suffering that came from struggling against the sad fact of life. Although the Dalai Lama believes that we may move towards happiness and freedom from suffering, we must begin that process by accepting it as a natural fact of human existence and courageously facing our problems head on. In our daily lives, problems are bound to arise. The biggest problems in our lives are the ones which we inevitably have to face, like old age, illness, and death. Trying to avoid our problems, or simply not thinking about them, may provide temporary relief. But I think that there is a better approach. If you directly confront your suffering, you will be in a better position to appreciate the depth and nature of the problem. If you are in battle, as long as you remain ignorant of the status and combat capability of your enemy, you will be totally unprepared and paralyzed by fear. However, if you know the fighting capability of your opponents, what sort of weapons they have, and so on, then you're in a much better position when you engage in the war. You might consider things like old age and death as negative, unwanted, and simply try to forget about them. But eventually, these things will come anyway. And if you've avoided thinking about these things, when the day comes that these events occur, it will come as a shock, causing unbearable mental uneasiness. However, if you spend some time thinking about old age, death, and these other unfortunate things, your mind will be much more stable when these things actually happen. You have already anticipated that they will occur. There's really no avoiding the fact that suffering is a part of life. And of course, we have a natural tendency to dislike our suffering and problems. I think that ordinary people don't view the very nature of our existence to be characterized by suffering. <laughs> I mean, on your birthday, people usually say, happy birthday. 
But actually, the day of your birthday was the birth of your suffering. But nobody says, happy birth of suffering day. Our attitude towards suffering becomes very important because it can affect how we cope with suffering when it arises. Now, our usual attitude consists of any intense aversion and intolerance of our pain and suffering. However, if we can transform our attitude towards suffering, adopt an attitude that allows us greater tolerance of it, then this can do much to help counteract feelings of mental unhappiness, dissatisfaction, and discontent. I think how you perceive life as a whole plays a role in your attitude about suffering. For instance, if your basic outlook is that suffering is negative and must be avoided at all costs, and in some sense is a sign of failure, this will add a distinct psychological component of anxiety and intolerance when you encounter difficult circumstances, a feeling of being overwhelmed. On the other hand, if your basic outlook accepts that suffering is a natural part of one's existence, this will undoubtedly make you more tolerant towards the adversities of life. And without a certain degree of tolerance towards our suffering, our life becomes miserable. Then it's like having a very bad night. That night seems eternal. It never seems to end. So, for me personally, the strongest and most effective practice to help tolerate suffering is to see and understand that suffering is the underlying nature of samsara, of unenlightened existence. Samsara, a Sanskrit term, is considered a state of existence characterized by endless cycles of life, death, and rebirth. This term also refers to our ordinary state of day-to-day -day existence which is characterized by suffering. All beings remain in the state, propelled by karmic imprints from past actions and negative delusory states of mind, until one removes all negative tendencies of mind and achieves a state of liberation. I mentioned to the Dalai Lama that the idea of the underlying nature of existence, at least our ordinary daily existence, which is characterized by suffering and is basically unsatisfactory, sounded somewhat discouraging and pessimistic. When I speak of the unsatisfactory nature of existence, this is in the context of the overall Buddhist path. These reflections have to be understood in their proper context, which is within the framework of the Buddhist path. Unless this view of suffering is seen in its proper context, there is a danger of misunderstanding this type of approach as being rather pessimistic and negative. Consequently, it's important to understand the basic Buddhist stance towards the whole issue of suffering. We find that in Buddha's own public teachings, the first thing he taught was the principle of the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is the truth of suffering. A lot of emphasis is placed on the realization of the suffering nature of one's existence. The point that has to be borne in mind is that the reason why reflection on suffering is so important is because there is a possibility of a way out. There is an alternative. There is a possibility of freedom from suffering. By removing the causes of suffering, it is possible to attain a state of liberation, a state free from suffering. According to Buddhist thought, the root causes of suffering 
are ignorance, craving, and hatred. These are called the three poisons of the mind. These terms have specific connotations when used within a Buddhist context. For example, ignorance doesn't refer to a lack of information as it is used in an everyday sense, but rather refers to a fundamental misperception of the true nature of the self and all phenomena. By generating insight into the true nature reality and eliminating afflictive states of mind, such as craving and hatred, one can achieve a completely purified state of mind free from suffering. Within the Buddhist context, when we reflect on the fact that our ordinary day-to-day -day existence is characterized by suffering, this serves to encourage us to engage in the practices that will eliminate the root causes of our suffering. I began to sense how reflecting on our suffering nature could play a role in accepting life's inevitable sorrows, and even as a valuable method of putting our daily problems in proper perspective. But I was curious to hear how the Dalai Lama dealt with suffering on a more personal level, how he handled the loss of a loved one, for instance. The subject arose in one of his public talks when an audience member, clearly in pain, asked him how to handle a great personal loss such as that of a child. To some degree, that depends on one's personal belief. If someone believes in rebirth, then accordingly, I think there is some way to reduce sorry or worry. One can take consolation in the fact that the loved one will be reborn. For those people who do not believe in rebirth, then I think there are still some simple ways to help deal with the loss. First, you could reflect that if you worry too much, allowing yourself to be too overwhelmed by the sense of loss and sorrow, and if you carry on with that feeling of being overwhelmed, not only is it very destructive and harmful to yourself, ruining your health, but also it would not have any benefit to the person who has passed away. For example, in my own case, I have lost my most respected tutor, my mother, and also one of my brothers. When they passed away, of course, I felt very, very sad. Then I constantly kept thinking that it's no use to worry too much, and if I really loved those people, then I must fulfill their wishes with a calm mind. So I try my best to do that. So I think if you've lost someone who is very dear to you, that's the proper way to approach it. You see, the best way to keep a memory of that person is to see if you can carry on the wishes of that person. Initially, of course, feelings of grief and anxiety are a natural human response to a loss. But if you allow these feelings of loss and worry to persist, there's a danger. If these feelings are left unchecked, they can lead to a kind of self-absorption, a situation where the focus becomes your own self. And when that happens, you become overwhelmed by the sense of loss, and you get a feeling that it's only you who is going through this. Depression sets in. But in reality, there are others who will be going through the same kind of experience. So if you find yourself worrying too much, it may help to think of the other people who have similar or even worse tragedies. 
Once you realize that, then you no longer feel isolated as if you have been picked out. That can offer you some kind of condolence. The wish to be free of suffering is the legitimate goal of every human being. It is the corollary of our wish to be happy. Thus, it is entirely appropriate that we seek out the causes of our unhappiness and do whatever we can to alleviate our problems. Searching for solutions on all levels, global, societal, family, and individual. But as long as we view suffering as an unnatural state, an abnormal condition that we fear, avoid, and reject, we will never uproot the causes of suffering or begin to live a happier life. Today I want to talk about everybody need mentor everybody need somebody even I need somebody even you need somebody we need to have somebody in our life the somebody can be your parents somebody can be your wife somebody can be your girlfriend somebody can be your friend but we don't need somebody and we need a partner that we can depend on it that we can trust it we can share our feelings the thing is that we need somebody in our life the day we born it that day we live life when the day we will be happy the day we will be dying everybody needs somebody because in this life we do need somebody having somebody in our side it make us feel strong and it make it give us our encouragement that we can do anything and they inspire us to do our impossible things in our life them give us strength that i'm i'm standing on your side don't worry you can do it and you will do it that they make you do the impossible things that's mattered in your life and the impossible thing is necessary in our life because sometimes sometimes we need to do impossibles that's nobody can do it and we need to do it because we want something better for this world and we want something better for us and we will do whatever in our limit to make sure that we will do those things we want something better for our humans we some want something that the next generation will have better and better life our children will have better and better life and that's what we are we born to do that's our legacy we can't change our legacy we can't change why we born in this world because we have and we need to do something in this world you and me we together we can do lot of big things and we need to do it, those things if you're listening to this means you want something 
you want something in your life you want to do something for this world you want to do something that improve your life your psychology because the way we think the way our psychology work we want to do something for this human and that's why we always think okay that's my legacy that we born for and i will do those things no matter what happen no matter what happens i will do those things because that's what i born to do that's why I'm, i am here and if you're listening to this you want something and you will do it and i think you will do it you just want, if you have vision if you have want to do something just do it don't wait for anything you just do it because whatever whatever you thinking is i think is better why you think it because you want to do these things it's in your brain you want to do something just don't do bad things that does not improve our life and others life just do the good things just do the things that matter in our life the matter in this earth because i know you are the smart man because you are listening to this you are you are the smart girl and smart people because you listening to this means you are the smart people you want something and i know you will do it just guys go go there and just do it make it happen good luck